This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. Tomorrow morning, many kids will be excited to see what's hidden beneath the wrapping paper. Surely some of them will be thrilled to see a book by one of their favorite authors. And one of the most beloved among the little ones is Oliver Jeffers. The author and illustrator is well known for his books, How to Catch a Star, The Day the Crayons Quit. My personal fave is Lost and Found. If you're not familiar with Oliver's work, let me tell you, his books are full of profound messages and incredible art that have inspired a fan base of kids and adults alike around the world over the past two decades. And now Oliver is gifting us all an all-ages book. It's called Begin Again, and it explores our human history and dreams for a better future. I was lucky enough to speak with Oliver Jeffers on stage at the Bram and Bluma Appel Salon at the Toronto Reference Library a couple of months ago. Here now is that conversation for you. Who here is a fan of Oliver's? Oh, probably should have. Thank you. Probably should have asked who isn't a fan. Uh, Do you think that my kids aren't fans? They they <laughs> they don't really care. Um, I was saying to um, somebody who was I was with earlier there that uh, my son went to the library and we're we're living back in Northern Ireland these days and he went to the local library with his school and he came back that night and and he said, "Daddy, did you have something to do with a book about crayons?" I was like, "Yeah." And he goes like, "I thought that looked like you." <laughs> and I was like, "Have I never read that to you?" And he goes, "No." <laughs> What do you read to your kids? Uh, other people's books? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll yeah. talk about what you're reading to them in a bit. Um, I just want to start by sort of setting um, the table by reading a passage for your book, which I've j- jotted down here, which is, the difference between right and better is that being right is about proving the past, while being better is about building the future. Right. Expand on that. Absolutely. We moved back to Northern Ireland, and that happened by accident, by the way, because we, in our infinite wisdom, thought, we're going to take a year of travel uh, with our kids before they go to school, and we're going to, you know, go around the world. Uh, And we started that in the summer of 2019. (laughs) And so we rented our apartment out in Brooklyn for two years, and then uh, set sail, and got as far as Japan in February of 2020. uh, And the shutters of the world came pulled down and we went to the only place that, that we could think to go which was a little apartment that we had in, in Northern Ireland uh, and we've kind of been there ever since so being in Northern Ireland and uh, you know as somebody who would have considered myself a bleeding heart liberal artist in New York what really kind of shocked me when I got back to Northern Ireland was I could see from the other side of the ocean back in New York there was a very um, bitter uh, election cycle that was happening. And it was like, the rhetoric here reminds me of where Northern Ireland was in the 1970s. And why is that? Why are, why are people going against their own best interests by trying to, to prove that their story is more important than the, somebody else's story, or that they were right? And, and it was like, it's, it's holding people back because 
by you being right, it means that somebody else must be wrong. And then that person who is wrong or wronged then carries that with them. Whereas if you replace the terms right and wrong with better and worse, it suddenly becomes very clear what needs to be done in any given scenario and what it is that you actually want. So in the case of Northern Ireland, better and worse would be stopping voting in sectarian parties that, that keep us apart. So as you were thinking about that, so in, the, in 2020, how did that lead to this? In other words, what's the genesis for okay. Beacon Again? It was, it was partly that, that awareness, that realization, but there was another, there was an anecdote um, uh, where we'd just come back, we'd been in Japan, so we knew how serious COVID was gonna be. Being quite aware that all around, everybody thought that the world is falling apart, it's all, everything's going pear-shaped, um, it's, it's all broken. And I do think that we have a very short attention span these days, and in thinking about germs, it was like, we forget how far we've actually come in many regards. Like the first person who suggested invisible things that float through the air make us sick was locked in a mental asylum only a century and a half ago. So we were there, we knew how serious lockdown was gonna be, other people weren't really buying it. Crossing the road one day, just, just in the days before it, we met an old lady and she had two big bags of shopping. And you know, she was very elderly. And I said, oh, you're getting ready for lockdown. And she said, yes, I am. And I, and I said, do you think we're gonna be in this for a long time? And she goes, you know what, love, I do. Because for, for a minute, I, it, I thought this was gonna remind me of back in the war, because Belfast was heavily bombed in World War II, making all the ships and the planes for the British Army. And, and she goes, but, it's, it's not, because back then we all tried to see how can we help? Whereas look around today, everybody's just trying to see what can I get away with? And it was the realization of that moment and that everybody is communicating from a perspective of preemptive defense that there's no conversation here. It's we're all screaming into the wind and all so busy trying to be understood that we forget to try and understand. And so at that juncture, you had these thoughts going through your head. Now, you're at a author and illustrator, is that, is that what we're calling illustrator? Yes, uh, you don't love that I, word. I, so yeah, but illustrator, artist, storyteller. Do you know, this is a, a, a little aside, I uh, had a sculpture at COP26, which is the UN summit, and uh, the, in Glasgow was 26 and was heavy on climate. And I had this sculpture in the blue zone, which is where all the world leaders and the business leaders go. And they didn't have a box to check for artists when I was registering. So the young Senegalese woman who, who uh, spoke 12 languages, by the way, um, who registered me, she says, ah, no box for artists, so I just put you down as an observer and a translator. I was like, that's kind of perfect. Yeah. So I call myself an observer and a translator okay. these days. You know, I don't, you know, like, yes, I draw pictures. There's, there's a, an accessibility about the pictures, but you know, I know people who are better at drawing pictures than, than, than me. Uh, Owen Colfer is this author, and we did a book together, and his son once asked me, Oliver, why are your drawings so popular? And it took me a minute to realize that was not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk to you as uh, observer and translator, or artist and author, however you want to put it. Um, so you helped the lady with the bags across the street? Yep. Okay. And then you had to make a decision. You could have written another kid's book. With I could. With similar themes, I think, not <clears throat> this exact book. Yeah. So for you, when did you say no? And you don't call this an adult book. You call it an all-ages book. An so all-ages book. It's a picture book. I've never said I write children's books. I've always said I write picture books. Because I do, you know, the, uh, the fate of Fausto is... Uh, equally valid a narrative for, for adults as it is for kids, you know, about greed and arrogance. And um, I knew this was going to be a book, and 
honestly one of the reasons that I thought this is not going to be a kids book because you know there's some fairly heavy themes in here about society uh, and then I tried reading to my kids they could not have cared less <laughs> but I'm now realizing that that's maybe a comment on just their idea of me as a father <laughs> rather than that it's not for kids so because uh, th you know there's there's plenty of kids who have been getting it and understanding it and having conversations and plenty of parents realizing this is actually a, 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 a nice platform to begin having some of these conversations the idea of raising uh, children it was like you don't really raise children you raise future adults and they these things have to be introduced at some point if we're going to be contributing positively to society as future adults so when I open this book I'll show you in a second I hopefully we can see at the back if someone you know came up to me at a dinner party or something yeah. and asked me this question I would be like where is someone else to talk to because this is a big question yeah to start with so it says <laughs> uh, where did we begin I don't know how well everyone can see this you'll see in your own copy of your book but I'm curious about that that what seems like a very sort of almost benign and simple question, yet very complex yep. and deep. That yep. was, these four words were deliberate. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We are storytelling creatures, and stories are probably one of the, the, the most important things that humans have created. All individuals are a collection of stories. They're the stories that we're told, which is our history, our context, you know, what our ancestors experienced, where we're from. There's the stories that are told about us, that's our reputation. And then there's the stories that we tell the, the stories we tell to other people, kind of a projection of our personality. But the most important story of all in there is the story that we tell ourselves. What is it that fuels us forward into an unknown future? And we have governed ourselves by stories all these years. Like the first stories that try to make sense out of chaos were constellations, you know, looking up at these, what, you know, the nails hanging the black curtain up at night. And what are they? What do they mean? And then the lines between them were the first illustrations of those stories. We are a story-driven species. And so what are the stories that we've been told? Why does it feel, that, why does everybody feel so lost right now? Where have we come from? What have the stories we've been telling ourselves as a context for what's happened that it feels so disjointed and turbulent? So it seemed like a reasonable place to begin. And the, so you were talking about the constellations there. Is that why the art, where the arts, the sky, a couple of planets, there's Earth and there's yep. other planets, some stars yeah. in there. Was that it's, sort of it's, that's very That's very, very deliberate. But you know what? Even How to Catch a Star is interested in the night sky. Way back home, you've got the, uh, this small boy who flew a plane up and he's on the moon looking back at Earth. I've become very, very fascinated with the uh, overview effect, which is a phenomenon that happens to the human mind when it ventures far enough away from the f surface of our planet to understand that this is a ball floating in space. Uh, and whenever I was recognizing the language that these astronauts were using, talking about looking at Earth from as far as the moon, that was the same way that I was talking about Northern Ireland from the distance of New York, because in New York, a lot of people didn't really know or care about our conflict. Like, a lot of people didn't know the difference between Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and the British Isles. Does anybody want to have a go, by the way, at <laughs> doing those? So, the two of them are geographical terms. So, the big island is Great Britain with England, Scotland, Wales. The United Kingdom is a political term because it's the big island and half or a quarter rather of the small island. So that's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And then both islands are the British Isles. Although I found out that people in the Republic of Ireland, they were like, we don't call it the British Isles. And I was like, well, what do you call it then? And they say, these islands. <laughs> I was like, well, what if you're somewhere else? Those islands. <laughs> 
so, you know, speaking about Northern Ireland from that distance, and it just seemed like a tragic, poignant waste of time and energy that we're killing each other to be either British or Irish, and nobody cares. And it was similar to the way that astronauts spoke about looking at Earth from the moon. And then a lot of perspective and uh, space, like cos cosmological perspective started to, to present itself in my work. And, and, and using that as, a, as a, uh, a, a device, I suppose, you could really talk about just how important stories are, for example. So whenever the Apollo 8 mission went up and went around the moon to look for a landing spot for uh, Apollo 11, they had no, they, they, it didn't occur to them to look back. Their, their focus was on the moon and, and going out that way. And it's only when they came around and then they could see Earth. And they're like, wow, look at that, that's beautiful. They took a photograph which became known as the Earthrise photograph, which started the Green Movement in 1969. But they could not work out what part of the Earth they were looking at. They could see a giant landmass, but it took them longer than they cared to admit to recognize what that was. And what they were looking at was the entire bottom half of Africa. They didn't recognize it because it was sideways. Mm. And we are not used to looking at the map sideways. Yeah. And then it becomes very clear, it's like, oh yeah, we're a ball floating in space. There is no up, there is no down. It's completely arbitrary that North is at the top of a map. That's a concept, that's a construct, that's a story we told ourselves to make sense. Yeah, I always say um, we think we're the center of the universe when we look at maps because we're always central, the center of it where you live. So when I lived in the Middle East, yeah. well, North America was far left of that. When I look yeah. at a map here, it's Yeah, it's and I, I find it really interesting when I moved to the States and I find some, some old school maps that divided Russia right down the middle so the <laughs> USA could be in the middle. And, you know, European maps for centuries have made Greenland about nine times bigger than it really is to push Europe down more in towards the middle. Like, they're, they're highly misleading. There's only one accurate map, actually, that's on a piece of paper, and it's called the Peter's Projection. And you look at it and you're like, ooh, wow. <laughs> and Africa is way bigger than it's, it's often denoted in maps. So you decide, okay, I'm going to write this all ages book. I have this concept. I have this idea. And then you've got to kind of figure out what your approach is because you... Yeah, I'm it could have, I, I, I might have made this into a film. I might have made it as a series of paintings. I didn't know. The reason why I ended up with a book, I think, is because a book is accessible in a way that other mediums just aren't. And it, uh, even if it was an art exhibition, say it was a collection of paintings, that would be together for a short period of time and then never again. Whereas the book stands the test of time. It sticks around. It doesn't need a plug. It can be handed down, it, it permeates and it stays in culture in a different way. So if I want to get this, some of these topics of conversation out there, I figured a book is about the best way to do that. And so as you start writing, what is your process? Do you do art and, and writing at the same time or how do you do it? I, I often do both uh, the words and pictures at the same time. It's, a kid asked me that once, I was like, you know, uh, do you write or draw first? And I was like, I do them both at the same time. And they went like this, wow. <laughs> like, not quite like that. Um, but it's a, it's a feeling thing, you know, whenever you, rem whenever you remember something, do you remember that in words or do you remember that in pictures? It's neither, it's sort of a feeling and then you've got everything I try to do, I try to convey what I'm saying and feeling in a way that has as little distortion as possible. So it's a, it's a combination of how do I say this and show this? And I've always felt that showing is more powerful than saying but with the combination of both things, you're setting out the ingredients so that the, whoever is reading it or viewing it can put those together in their own mind. And that's a much more powerful emotional response when anybody out there then becomes a co-creator of this. Because they, I'm not spelling something out, but it's, when it comes together in their mind, that's the completion of it. And so when you're writing for young kids, I would imagine, or non-adults, I will say, um, 
it might be easier to picture your reader. In other words, I don't know if you write for one person. If that's I do write for one person. Yet. When you're writing for everyone, mm -hmm. there's not singular, as, as much of a singularity. No. So when you were thinking like of the words, because this book, it's really beautiful and complex, and yet its beauty lies in simplicity as well. With the stories, I tend to just not really show them to people, and I, I intuitively know. But with the, the, the intention of this book was to convey complicated feelings in a simple way, I keep testing them on people, and I keep reading and showing, and if there's something that is not landing the way that I feel it needs to land, then I go back and finesse it, because I want to boil things down to such simplicity that they cannot be disagreed with, because I have an intuitive feeling that all people, even on various different political divides and religious divides, are much more similar than we actually give ourselves credit for. And so how do I get to that deep emotional point before there's misinterpretation? So this book, um, I've seen it described as a book about the climate crisis, about greed, about, well, how, how would you describe what this book is about? I think it's a book about the power of storytelling and the importance of community. Is it a book about climate? Sure, but so's stuck. So's the day the crowns quit. The, the thinking that climate is this separate issue that's over here is dangerous to us. Because everything is climate related. We need a climate for anything to happen in. And the idea that it's an isolated problem, you know, even the way with countries go in to negotiate their own climate terms and the way they deal with things, it's like, remember there was non-smoking sections in airplanes? It's a bit like that, you know, like because germs and weather do not need passports. So to treat these things as if they did is, is laughably futile. And whenever, you know, that overview effect again, it becomes very obvious that this is one giant single super system. It needs to be treated with a cohesive united front for anything to take hold. Frank White is one of the NASA engineers that, that put some of those early spaceships up, and he said, we're going to have to start acting as one species with one destiny. We are not going to survive if we don't start doing that. And so what role do you see art playing in the climate crisis? I think art is a massively important role because if, you know, it's right up until this point, it's been thought of as a science issue. Uh, anybody here a teacher or in education? Okay, so very important work that is preparing future contributing members of society, there's been a lot of talk worldwide about STEM education. Science, technology, engineering, maths. And it's, and it's only recently that somebody thought to put an A in there for art. And I've been going to all of these uh, science conferences and working with scientists and I've managed to convince them all that the A is the most important letter in there because science is how we do something, but art is why we do it. So it's the stories that drive us forward, the science figures out what to do with that. So that is the job of science, uh, of art. So art is not, you know, it's not decoration. It's not making something look pretty. It's not entertainment. The, uh, and, and a visual talk that I've been doing, I prepared this slide, and it's like, art and storytelling are not the icing on the cake. They're not even the cake. They are the table upon which the cake sits. The job of art and storytelling is to change the ground under your feet so you see the sky differently and you see your role in the world differently. So when you're thinking about these big issues, this summer, just by way of example, and I don't have to tell any of you, um, the hottest summer on record since we've started yeah. keeping records, from Greece to Hawaii to Canada, 
to, to New York, there were floods. Ireland? Yeah, to Ireland. Where do you find the hope? Because so many people, and I, I would say previous to this summer, but so many people anecdotally had told me, like, I've never felt so hopeless. Yep. Uh, because we're all disconnected. Because we are in this age of liberalism and individualism where we're all told that we are, you know, the most important per person in the world. And that's a, that's a lovely way to think, but it disconnects us from our community. So the massiveness of this problem compared to you as an individual seems overwhelming. So where is my hope there? Because having been at a bunch of the, these, these conferences, speaking at the TED uh, Climate Countdown, running in the, the, the rooms at like UN Climate Week, for all of these problems that we face, there are solutions. We are just not getting behind the same ones. And that's ego comes into it. And even in the climate arena, people are prioritizing being right over being better. So a way to rephrase this or reframe it and shift the perspective on it is that we don't have a climate problem. The climate is not broken. The world is not broken. It's doing exactly what it should with the input it's receiving. We have a people problem in that we are too busy arguing over what to play in the radio to notice the smoke coming out of the engine. So. It seems infinitely easier to settle an argument than to change the weather. And we can do that. There are solutions. We just have to start getting behind the same ones and explaining to people and bringing people in along the journey that they have a part to play in this. So when I, when I spoke at uh, COP26 and I did that sculpture, people were saying there was five groups of people present. And I realized there wasn't, there was six. So the, the, those groups were world leaders, business leaders, the delegates trying to actually make the change, the media, then outside there was the angry youth protesting, which I probably would have been in had, it, had I not been inside the blue zone. But then from inside this, the, the, the inside passage, I was like, realized that that's not actually helping. These are the people trying to fix the problem and yelling at them is, is, is discouraging rather than, you know, if it was a halftime talk, it should have been encouraging rather than you're doing it wrong. And I have noticed from watching my wife, the way she mothers our children, that you'll never get anybody to change their mind by telling them that they're wrong. But yet that's what we keep doing. The last group of people present at COP26, so if all the people that cared about climate change were in that one city, the last group of people was represented by the taxi drivers. 80% of that city did not care. And but when you talk to them, they're like, what do you think's happening in here? I don't know, it's a waste of money. Why? They have not been included in the story of what is happening and their role in it. So the future of storytelling in the climate arena needs to not be about these internal debates between the, uh, the, the, the protests and the, the business leaders, it is a matter of bringing the 80% of people who don't feel that they've got an entry point in to bring them along. How do we do that? By including them, by rephrasing how it works. Uh, an example I was using is in 2016, the election in the USA, coal mining became like the poster child of the, the, the forgotten people of America. And, you know, logically, as, as a liberal, it was like, well, coal's bad, it's destroying our planet. And from the other perspective, it was like, don't tell me what to do. Uh, don't tell me I'm not important. If we had gone about that very differently, instead of saying, you're irrelevant, coal is bad, we had said, thank you, that mission is now complete. We need you for a new job. We have a new mission. And brought those people with us, it would have been entirely different. You said this book is... Um a book of observations. There is no nice tiny bow at the end. There isn't a No, there's conclusion. not. And, you know, it's, I was quite careful to not tell anybody what to say or think or do. It's like these are the things that I notice. I am laying them out for you. You can do with them what you want. But I happen to be optimistic. 
I do think that while the world does feel very scary, a lot of the issues outside of the climate um, seem to be getting worse. I think it's easy to forget in a time of short attention spans that things are getting better. You know, the, we just now actually see all of the problems everywhere at the same time. Was even go back to 50 years ago, where the, there was all sorts of inequality that was generally ignored. 100 years ago was way worse. You know, take what I do, kids' books, didn't really exist a century ago. Why? Because children didn't live predictably long enough to warrant getting their own books. Hmm. We forget how far we have come. So when you're a kid, because my eldest, who's 13, for the first time, and I know other kids have asked their parents this, asked me a couple of months ago now, and it, I found it quite disheartening um, when she asked it, because it said sometimes how kids think about the world, that are full, they're full of joy and optimism mm -hmm. and all these things, and then she came crashing in and said, why is the world so messed up? Why are we so terrible to I, each other? I, I, why the world is so messed up is because it is, we, I think we're using the wrong measuring stick for for, for success of what we want. You know, it's all about growth, right? It's all in financial terms. It's all about growing and more and having more and faster. But to what end? If you look at uh, uncharted growth in biological terms, that's also called cancer. So what do we want any of this stuff for? Uh, the, the story is accelerating beyond any reasonable person can keep up with it. It's, everything is disconnected. And we've, I think we've lost a sense of our context and our, and our purpose. And and the hope then goes with that because it feels absolutely insurmountable. But there is change afoot and you can sense it everywhere you look. You know, we're, think about when we were kids, the things that we valued were important. And now look at the kids in the room today and the things that they value and feel important. That's, that's a comparison enough to realize that things are getting better. There is a mindset, there's a zeitgeist shift about returning to these things that we actually do want, which is safety, dignity, community and purpose. Thank you. We so appreciate you. Thank you for coming Thank to you. Toronto. Thank, Thank you. you for the that was my onstage conversation with author and illustrator Oliver Jeffers. His new book for all ages is called Begin Again. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.